Hey everybody, I want to take a second to tell you about Snagit 2022. I don't have time to go into all the details about Snagit 2022, but it has a variety of options for fast and easy to use video creation. It's got new ways to work across devices and platforms with the new cloud library. And your purchase or upgrade includes your first year of maintenance and the newly updated Snagit certification course. With 20 plus videos of Snagit how-tos, certification is a great way to help you speed up your workflows, unlock potential, and get your work done faster. So check out Snagit 2022 today at snagit.com. And now, back to the podcast. Hey everybody, my name is Matt Pierce. I'm the Learning and Video Ambassador for TechSmith Corporation. So glad that you could join us today. As we get going today, one of the things we'd like to mention at the beginning of our every show is just the uh, the TechSmith Academy is something that we, we love and are uh, happy that we get to share with you all. It's free learning content. You can go out and learn about videos and script writing and storyboarding and all sorts of things. One of the things we're highlighting is our screen recording basics course. It's available in its entirety, or if you want to watch on YouTube, you can watch them. We're dropping episodes every week, but go check out the whole course. If you're new to screencasting, it will take you start to finish through the entire process. I will note it is not about using Camtasia. It mentions Camtasia, but it's not the, the functions and features. So definitely check that out. Now, today, before we introduce our guests, I just want to say just we know there's a lot of crazy stuff going on today. Uh, there's fires and floods and hurricanes and all sorts of stuff wherever you are. We hope you're staying safe and taking care of yourself because it's 2020, folks. I mean, geez, oh, Pete's, are we gonna ever get a, Are we ever gonna get through this year? We hope so. Now, I want to introduce my guest. He's actually been a guest before. We're so grateful that he was willing to return. And I want to say that you know sometimes you find people in the world that you just connect with and you just like to talk to. Tim Slade is one of those people, and I appreciate Tim not only because he's just easy to talk to, but he's always sharing information. He's always looking to uh, help people in learning and design to get better at what they do. And so, with that, I want to welcome Tim Slade to the Visual Lounge. Hi, Tim. Hey, hey, Matt. Uh, I have to ask: Is Jizo Pete's like a regional Michigan? <laughs> Uh, expression there. It's it's at least a Matt Pierceism, if if nothing that else. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I think I'll have to I'll have to borrow Jesus Pete's. Yeah, I don't know where I learned it, but you know, I'm not much one for the cursing. Uh, so, no. uh, so I Jesus Pete's. It, it it sounds like a like a like a frozen meal type of brand. Jesus Pete's <laughs> Salisbury steak and peas. See, this is why I love having conversations because you'll pull me out, call out my Midwesternness. You know, yeah, no, it's all good. I spent <laughs> some time in the Midwest. I know what bubblers are, and you know all those things. Did 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 you did you grow up in time when they said time machines, referencing uh, ATMs? Did you know that? No, I, I have in Wisconsin. Yeah, in Wisconsin, they call them time machines. And I remember when I moved there from Phoenix, uh, my coworkers were like, "Oh, I'm headed to the time machine," and I'm like, "Oh, yeah." And it was the ATM. So okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, Wisconsin might be very different than Michigan. We've got our own little uh, phrases and sayings. Oh, can I just get scooch right through here? Something yeah. that we we say a lot. A couple, a couple few. Um, a few. So couple few. Okay. I like so, that. so Tim, we're glad you're here despite our Midwesternness uh, today. Uh, one of the things we're going to be talking about is your new, well, new as in second edition of your book. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, gosh, just, uh, well, it went live on Amazon last Tuesday. Um, so yeah, it's been, uh, gosh, it was like 
uh, for me, it's it's been almost nine months in the making. So you know, b- between me and you and everyone else, like I'm so done with the second edition of my book. But for everyone else, it's brand new. Uh, yeah, it just came out on Amazon last week, so I'm I'm super happy about that. Yeah, and congratulations on that. I mean, what what an undertaking. I mean, obviously you spent nine months on the the revamp, all the time, the initial writing, and go check out book uh, Tim's book. Where can, where can we find it? So if people are looking, they're anxious right yeah. now to go look for it. If you go on Amazon and search e-learning and scroll through it, it's a big blue square book. has my name on it. You'll find it. So Awesome. Yeah, just look yeah. for Tim Slade everywhere. So Tim, last time you were on, we talked about your whole backstory. We talked about how you got involved. I don't want to I don't want to talk about that. They can go watch that. We know you were in sure. loss prevention and like a lot of people made the random like jump into the world of learning development because you know, most people don't go through the same process. Yeah. However, I was the weird one that I went through school. Like I, you know, I didn't have a job, like a full-time job before I got into e-learning. And I was thinking about this. Um, and as a lot of people go through that process of, uh, making that like I they're doing something, they find that they're good at teaching or they like doing it and they they end up doing e-learning or training or design uh, for instructional sure. design. Um, what steps should someone p- take along that journey to feel confident in, in sure. being able to do the e-learning job? Because I know I actually applied for a job when I was in an internship. I was learning about instructional design. I applied for an internship or a job with the, it was with the federal courts of all places to do like training. Sure. So, and I didn't feel like, I was like, I don't know enough. I can't, I can't do this job. Like I turned down an interview and everything. Cause I was so nervous about like feeling capable. So what, what yeah. should someone know or what should steps should they take to feel comfortable? Yeah. I mean, as I think sometimes it's, it's easy for me to forget some of the challenges I faced when I started, but I was reminded actually this morning, I, I got an email from a woman who's attending a, a storyline class that I'm teaching an articulate storyline class. And one of the things she was struggling with is, you know, we're learning how to use storyline to build e-learning. And this is true, whether you're using Camtasia to create video or storyline to do e-learning, there's a difference between the technical skills that go into the construction and the design and development of an e-learning course. And then there's the technique. And so one of the things she was struggling with is, you know, she, she understood how to create an e-learning course, the technical aspect of it, because that's what we've been teaching in this class that I'm teaching. But she was like, I'm trying to do this myself and I have all of this content and I have stakeholders and I just don't know how that translates into an e-learning course. She's trying to translate this instructor-led workshop into e-learning. And so, you know, the thing, I always equate it to like building a house. You know, if you, if, if you wanted to go build your own house, looking at the end result seems overwhelming. How do you, where do you even begin? And, and really it's, it's about, you know, starting with the blueprint and then going from a blueprint to a 3d mock-up and then from a 3d mock-up to, okay, I need this lumber and it's, and it's iterating your way there. And so one of the things that, uh, you know, when I started, I really struggled with figuring out where to begin. And, and so my biggest tip for people is, you know, don't worry about the technology of how you're going to develop it. Don't worry about how it's going to look like just focus in on your content. And even if you're just writing on a piece of paper or you're sketching out slides or you're working in PowerPoint or whatever tool you're using, like just start simple and iterate on that from there. And, you know, I know one of the things we'll talk about is how do you design, you know, e-learning that actually gets results. And, uh, it, you know, it always comes back to just start with a good content, design, good content, 
even if you're just doing it on scraps of paper and slowly iterate to the, the completed course. Don't, don't worry too much about what the end result will look like because then you'll just overwhelm yourself. Yeah. So that, I mean, that leads to a question because I can, I can imagine like, okay, focus on my content, focus on my content. But I think the question becomes for a lot of people, how do I know that this is going to be good at helping someone to learn? You know, yeah. I, you know, anything more than ever before, Tim, and I, see if you agree with me that everyone is a teacher nowadays. Like people go on YouTube and yep. they teach and they have no credentials. They have no background. They have no formal stuff, but, and that's fine. But how do you know that as someone who's being tasked by a, maybe a company or uh, who knows all the different ways that you might be tasked to create some learning content, how do you know if it's really effective learning content? And I'm not talking about metrics and stuff like that, but like are sure. there principles or ideas here that you can say like, here, look for this, look for that. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to get, if, if I'll be really simple at first with what I'm about to say, and then I'll, I'll get more practical. So one of the things I did when I was new to e-learning, not knowing, I didn't know what instructional design was when I got into e-learning. In fact, I actually thought instructional design was totally separate than being an e-learning developer. You know, obviously that's not the case. Instructional design is a function of my role. Right. And so one of the things that I think um, the thing that makes a good educator or a teacher, regardless of how you're teaching or what you're teaching, is the ability to empathize with somebody who is brand new at something. So if, I, if I'm being really, really simple here, and it maybe sounds philosophical, but what, before I knew what instructional design was, I at the very minimum knew how to put myself in the shoes of somebody who might be having to learn the the content, the skills, the behaviors of what I was trying to teach. And I still use that today. Like I empathize with, okay, well, if I didn't know this, what would I need to know and what would I need to do? And I think oftentimes, you know, we have stakeholders and subject matter experts. They really struggle with being able to empathize with people who don't know anything about what they're talking about. And that's frankly, it's what makes them experts. You know, by the time you become an expert in something, it is hard to empathize with somebody who doesn't know anything about what you're talking about. And so I think the special thing for us is to empathize with our learners and understand what are the things they're going to know. And then from, you know, being more practical and more, um, uh, more, more focused on the technique of instructional design, you know, the biggest thing I think is, is focusing less on what people need to know and more on what people need to do. You know, at the end of the day, our learning, regardless of what you're creating, if it's a job aid, a video, or a full flow, you know, full-fledged e-learning course or a workshop is, is really just looking at the behaviors and tasks that you want people to do on the job. And if you focus on that and you focus your conversations with your stakeholders and subject matter experts on doing rather than knowing, then it, then it just keeps pointing you in the right direction of, what content you choose to include or exclude, what sort of activities you build, whether they're focused on performance or just knowledge retention. So if you can empathize with your learner and focus on doing at the very minimum, like you're going to be headed in the right direction. But I, I love that, right? Because I think, um, I mean, there's lots of thoughts about these assessment tests out there that you can take about yourself. And I know mm. at, at work, we just did one. It's the, it's the strength finders, right? Like what, sure. what are your strengths? And um, it's interesting to see the number of people that, and like some of my groups that are, are kind of natural teachers, maybe they're not instructional mm -hmm. designers all, but like how many of us have that high on empathy, right? Like yeah. being empathetic. I, so I love that idea because I feel like at the heart of good learning is understanding that someone else doesn't know what you know. And if you're, you're just trying to, if you can get them to that point, it makes a lot of sense. Now, 
what what role do you think? Because there's lots of theory, there's lots of science out there about these things. What role do you think that all plays? And especially thinking through that, I, the lens of a new person, like how much should they spend? You spend time going to read articles and get yeah. set up on like trying to understand the like the scientific side of learning design. Yeah, it's a hard it's hard because for not for all people, but for a lot of people, at least people like me, theory is not fun. It's not fun to read about theory. And, you, you know, it's more fun to learn about practical things that you can implement right now. And so for, at least for me, for a long time, I, uh, I don't actively consciously or subconsciously, I avoided learning about the theory. And then, you know, as I got deeper in my career, of course, it's, it's something that I started to explore. And so, you know, if somebody's new to e-learning or new to instructional design, you know, again, thinking at the minimum, that you can do, the minimum thing would be to learn about adult learning theory and, and the differences between pedagogy and andragogy. And the reason why it's so important is for folks out there like me who didn't have a formal background in education or adult learning, when you get put in a position where you have to create training content or a learning experience for someone else, what we oftentimes do or what I've, what I've found is we revert back to what we know. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a background in adult learning theory, the thing that we do know is we know, you know, we all had an experience going to school from the age of five all the way up till 18 and then beyond that. And so we create learning experiences that mimic that type of learning experience, which is geared towards children. And so it's very uh, facilitator driven. It's just more focused on delivering knowledge versus creating performance. And so the big shift for me was when I realized and when I learned about, you know, Malcolm Knowles adult learning theory and the principles of adult learning and, um, and, and focusing on creating learning content that helped my adult learners solve real world problems rather than just trying to transfer knowledge and information and realizing that adults are motivated differently than children when it comes to learning. And the way we approach um, creating performance-based learning is totally different than the way you might do it for children. And so I think when we, you're right, there's just countless theories you can go out there and explore, and it's easy to become overwhelmed with it. But just understanding the differences between andragogy and pedagogy, which sound like, you know, really uh, overwhelming terms, but it's just really difference between adults and children in, in the terms of learning. If you can just do that, then again, you know, it'll at least it'll at least change your, your thinking. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Right. And that's a, that's the interesting thing. There's so many things out there and there's so many theories and they are getting updated. Um, I I. I I actually feel like I'm somewhat at a disadvantage that when I did my master's degree and I learned all Mm. about theory, you know, we talked about Blooms, we talked about Ganya, we talked about like, um, we had a book that was all about learning theories. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's great. But as someone who, I wasn't becoming a PhD, I wasn't becoming someone to increase the body of knowledge. Uh, It was really about uh, you know, I was going to become a practitioner and I feel like I missed the opportunity to understand some of those things better because I didn't practice first. I didn't, mm-hmm. wasn't involved. I didn't, I didn't, you know, my workplace experience, I had been a teacher for a nonprofit organization preparing, uh, young men and women to go serve missions for a couple years. Like, mm-hmm. like I taught them for three weeks at a time, right? Like that yeah. wasn't much of, exp- I mean, yeah, it was teaching experience, but I didn't have that corporate experience. That I wish now that yeah. I look back, I'm like, I can see like, Oh, I wish I understood these series better from a very much like, what does it mean to apply 
principles of instruction and, you know, Gagne. Now I find myself reading lots of papers because I'm like, well, what does the literature actually say about video? <laughs> like what's, well, what really that, is work? I, I think what's interesting about that, and I've seen this too with a lot of folks who they go to, to college with, uh, you know, learning about instructional technology or instructional design or adult learning theory. They go get a master's degree or even a PhD, and then they get thrown into the corporate world and they get smacked in the face because they realize, oh gosh, I know all the theory, but I wasn't able to put it into actual practice during those four or eight years you spent in college. And so it's interesting because when I fell into the corporate world of learning and development, even though I didn't know the theory, I was constantly pressured for an ROI on my learning content. And so it was through that experience for me that forced me to go learn about, okay, well, if I need to get an ROI, what are the things I need to do that's going to help people do the things that's going to get the ROI? And so it's kind of, that's how I fell upon the theory was being pressured for, you know, at the end of the day, delivering a result to the business. And so you know, it's not, there's no right or wrong way to get into our industry or what, if you fell into it by accident like me or like you, you went through it intentionally. It's just realizing that there, there's, there's experiences or knowledge that you're going to have to go obtain one way or another. College is not going to give you everything and learning about it, being thrown in the deep end of the pool like I was, is not going to give you everything either. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, so we, we, I have a question here I, I, I want to address because I think it's a really, sure. it's an, an important question. We want to talk about more about the book. Um, and everybody, just so you know, again, if you want a chance to win Tim's book, go ahead and tell us in the chat, you know, how'd you get into this? How did you get involved yep. in instructional design? Or even if you're not there yet, what are you hoping to do? Uh, and actually, uh, so this is relevant. Uh, Mm-hmm. Kathy, hi. I actually remember Kathy. She came to us some of our screencast camps. She says, thanks to COVID, I had to change industries. Now I'm creating five to seven episodes each week on crafting instead of one customer service video a month. Tim, what's the biggest change from the first and second edition of your book? So, you oh, know, gosh. obviously, you know, the world changes. Uh, I'm sure I, I don't even know when the first book was launched, but like, sure. you know, things, the, 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 I guess the field, if we can call it that, moves forward. So are there bigger changes or things that you updated between one and two? Yeah. So um, I guess let me, let me, the first book came out, I think in 2017. Um, I had joined GoDaddy at the time. I was uh, their director of instructional design. And when I joined GoDaddy, I was tasked with taking four people who knew nothing about instructional design or e-learning and turn them into e-learning designers. Mm -hmm. And it was through that experience, I, I, I can literally remember where I was sitting in my office as I was putting together all this content for them. And I looked at the content and I was like, oh, I have a book here. And so then I wrote a book through that experience teaching these people how to become e-learning designers. And it was because I was teaching my team at the time how to become e-learning designers, all of my content was super practical about managing stakeholders and managing projects and creating storyboards and prototypes. And then after I left GoDaddy and started my own business uh, at the beginning of 2019, uh, what I really wanted to do at the time was write a a, a totally separate book on instructional design for e-learning, because that was really what was missing from the first book, is how do you create e-learning that actually delivers a result? It was really only focused on the practical ins and outs of managing the project. And I, I hem and hawed on it for the longest time, and then I realized that I couldn't talk about instructional design without talking about the project management. I couldn't talk about the project management without talking about the instructional design. And so that's when it dawned on me that I really needed a second edition of my book. So to answer Kathy's question, I I literally rewrote 
probably every single page in the book and touched every single word and the design of it. So really what's new in the book is it's still the, the foundation of managing projects and managing stakeholders and writing storyboards, but it's been augmented with all the other things that go into making a really good e-learning course. So it's the how do people learn and how to do the needs analysis and how to create a blended learning solution. That's not just e-learning or ILT, you might create a blended solution. Uh, it's how to create interactivity that drives performance. And so it includes all of these instructional design things that take what I wrote in the first edition and just takes it one step further. Um, and then beyond that, uh, you know, in total, I think it's about three times more content. It's printed in color now. Um, you know, it, it's just a total revamp. It is not the same book at all from the first edition. If I could call it a brand new book, I would. It's 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 more different from the first book than it is the same. Yeah. Oh, well, that's awesome. I mean, and it makes so much sense because I, it's been interesting to me as I've progressed in my career that instructional design has become more like build the design piece is mm-hmm. like a, just, it's such a sliver, like, you know, yeah. we're doing it for maybe this, this portion of it, but there's all these other things I have to be doing. And even in, and especially in technology. And I, I don't know if, uh, you know, others are explaining this, but I feel like it's a lot of that connecting with the customer. It's connecting with the developers of the software It's connecting, it's doing all these things. And only, you know, out of a, a let's say a one year cycle, it's like six weeks of development. Sure. Yeah. And I think one of the common themes in my first book and even in the second edition is that good e-learning design is more so much more than just instructional design. It's everything from how you manage your stakeholders to how you uh, create a storyboard to the visual design component, like creating good content is super important, but it's really only a sliver of creating something that's actually going to be effective in the practical world. Makes makes complete sense. So, Tim, yeah. one of the things we want to talk about is, of course, um, you know, this idea of delivering results from your e-learning. And uh, it's obviously there's so much that goes into that it depends. But I'm, I'm curious if you have thoughts about, like, how do you make sure that any given piece that you're doing is going to deliver the, those results um, more so than what we've already talked about? Yeah, I mean, so as I was going back to the book, as I was writing the book and trying to identify what are the key components to creating not just an e-learning course, but any learning deliverable that's going to deliver the desired results. The biggest thing that I came back to is it, it really starts at square one with how you respond to your stakeholders when they say we need training, because it, that's how it always starts is they have something that's not happening. They want people to be doing something that are not. They assume we need training and how you respond in that very moment dictates whether or not any of that, the rest of that course is going to be successful. And I cannot tell you how many times, and I'm sure other people can, this will resonate with them. And how many times do we start a project? You accept the request for training, you start designing something and you get like 50, 60% done through the project. And you have this like, Oh crap moment when you realize, Oh, this isn't going to fix it because you become contextually aware of the issue and, and why they asked for it and what's really happening within the organization. And so the goal of creating learning, creating training that delivers results is to shift 
that moment of realization that you have of what is the right answer to the beginning of the project before you invest any time uh, creating content. And so you do that by doing a needs analysis and asking questions and uh, not just taking your stakeholders for fa uh, face value when they say we need training. It's asking why do you think you need training and uh, identifying what's really happening with their audience and, and trying to get a contextual awareness of what's happening, why it's happening, what needs to be done differently so that you can make an informed decision of A, whether or not training is the answer and B, whether or not e-learning is the answer. Um, the sooner you can do that, the sooner you'll be much more successful in anything that you create. Yeah. Isn't that funny that the, the answer sometimes is to say no, like it's to say like, no, 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 you don't need what you're asking for, what you really need. And, and the, I mean, the outcome is always going to be better if you can give someone th what they really need versus what they, they really want, I suppose. Yeah. Well, so one of the, I have a, a big bolded section in my book of, uh, uh, a big, a big part of our job is talking our stakeholders out of training. <laughs> like we, we shouldn't, it shouldn't be default to create training. It should be default to find the, the issue and recommend a solution. And so I think one of the things a lot of folks struggle with, especially when they have training or instructional design in their job title is realizing that part of our job is simply to recommend a performance solution, whether or not that requires training. And so sometimes it requires training. Sometimes it requires a combination of things. And, and part of our job outside of creating training is, is making recommendations that maybe have nothing to do with training. And the challenge there, of course, is being persuasive and helping your stakeholders understand that you're not just saying no, you're saying, yes, training might fix it, but also your, hey, your leadership style might fix it, or maybe a job aid might fix it or whatever the case might be. Yeah. And uh, that's when I was going through grad school, we call that the system, right? Look at the whole system, look at all the parts and pieces. It might be that you need to tell somebody to, to stand differently or they need, you know, they're, they're so worried about their benefits that, you know, maybe there's things you can do to help them to get more focused. So, so Tim, we've talked a lot of, uh, you know, about a, a variety of different things and I'm thinking about, um, you know, we talk a lot about designing stuff, creating stuff, but uh, the measurement part is one that I'd like to just jump into for a little bit, because I feel like that's the thing that often gets overlooked just because of time and yeah. it's hard, it's expensive, but what advice would you give, especially thinking about these folks who are, are trying to figure this out, how, what are some things they can do to really start measuring and look at, looking at the effectiveness? I think sometimes you can just see like, yep, it worked. It didn't work. That's cool. But a lot of times it, it's more complicated than that. So do you have yeah. advice for, for folks in that sense? So I think a lot of times we, uh, to your point, like we, we spend so much time working on getting the thing built and delivered that we think about measurement at the last moment, when in reality, I'll go back to my previous point, you have to think about how you're going to measure the thing again before you build it. And so if mm -hmm. you're focusing on what people need to do, then you can identify this is how we're going to measure the thing we're going to build keeping your, you know, laser focused on the performance at the end of the day. And then when we talk about measurement, you know, without going into the four levels of evaluation and whether you do surveys, quizzes, measure ROI or measure behavior, one of the things I think is a common theme, at least that I've seen, at least with like level one, level two evaluations, when you're just doing a survey or um, like quiz questions is it's so frequent that we do surveys, or we add quiz questions, we collect all of this data and then we do nothing with it. Uh, it just sits in the LMS. And so my, my general philosophy is 
if you're not going to do anything with it, don't bother measuring. Like you're not going to do anything with the data. Don't put a survey in because it's what you've always done or because it's obligatory or don't do a quiz because quizzes don't engage learners, uh, even though we think it's engaging. Uh, if you're not going to do anything with that data, don't don't do it. Um, what we should be striving for is measuring if we're talking about creating a learning that delivers results. No results are delivered by measuring whether or not somebody liked your course. And no the results, business results, are going to be delivered because they answered, you know, the correct answer on a multiple choice quiz. So, you know, I don't put a lot of stock into level one, level two. It's cool, but it's easy, and we don't do a lot with it anyways. So what we should be doing is, you know, when you deliver a, a course or you deliver learning, Go and look at did they did they accomplish the thing you were seeking to accomplish? And it, you know, depending on how depending on what you're measuring and your audience and all of the the different variables that go into it, no, it's not gonna always be easy to measure that. It's not always gonna be easy to get that data, or it's gonna be time intensive to go observe those people. But you know, at least make an attempt, at least try to identify what it is you're trying to change and, and identify whether or not it's observable or measurable in the first place. And if it is great Yahtzee, you know, go observe it and go measure it and, and see if what you're doing is actually effective. Yeah. We had, uh, uh, Don Mahoney on recently, and we talked a lot about this. Mm -hmm. uh, Oftentimes people will design courses with the outcome intended of remembering how to do something and but that's not really shouldn't be a course that should be like a job aid because like if your expectations are going to remember it either they like it's critical like i'm gonna i'm a pilot maybe there's some things i have to remember or i'm just doing my job why like i can look it up like google has maybe taught me that i need to just look it up right the problem with that, and again, I say this in the book, knowledge and behavior aren't mutually exclusive. Just because people know more doesn't mean they're going to do more. Like the example I give uh, is like, if I wanted to lose 30 pounds right now, I have all the knowledge to lose 30 pounds. I know I need to eat less and work out more. It's not an issue of knowledge. Maybe it's an issue of skill. Maybe I need to hire a trainer to help me work out more. Or maybe there's a motivational issue or an environmental issue because the, you know, the West Coast is on fire and I can't go outside and hike because, you know, there's so many issues there. It's not knowledge and knowledge and behavior are not mutually exclusive. And so you're right. Like when we when you, if you're going into building a course with the the goal that they're going to remember something, yeah, maybe Maybe, maybe that's just a job aid or maybe that's something they need to look up. Nobody needs to remember everything. Maybe they just need to find a way to reference it quickly. Yeah, for sure. So uh, another question, this one comes from Kyle Martin or Kyle Maine. Sorry, Kyle. Uh, he said, where did Tim learn theory? So obviously you came through this path of you weren't a learning, you know, graduate student. Yeah. So how did you, what was your path? To, and if you've got references, that's cool. But like, how did you go about doing that? Was it just talking, going to conferences? Did you read a lot of articles? What what did you do? I learned through by creating a lot of really crappy e-learning courses and <laughs> learning through <laughs> trial and error that, uh, you know, just putting a bunch of content and shoving it down my learners' throats wasn't going, going to be effective. And so the way I learned uh, and I do take pride in this. I take pride that I don't, you know, I have a degree in criminal justice. I don't have any formal credentials in any of this stuff. And that's okay. Uh, I take pride in the fact that I was thrown in the deep end. And so what I do is I continually throw myself in the deep end of whatever I'm doing. And I'm going to get it wrong the first time. And and through that failure, I'll learn. And then I'll start Googling. And so I learned theory through a lot of failure and a lot of Googling and attending conferences and 
and just being really aware of what works and what doesn't work. Um, uh, th- that, that seemed to work for me. It doesn't work for everybody, but it's worked for me. Yeah, that that's I, I, what what a great advice, and it's hard to remember because we don't. No one wants to fail. Like uh, you know, mm-hmm. the mantra at Facebook was fail, fail fast. But let's be honest, failing sucks. It hurts. It's not fun, but it is really a great opportunity to learn. And if it's not, at least it, if it's not life or death circumstances, it's okay. Sure. Yeah, it's totally fine. And I um, I was talking with somebody about this the other day about you know so many people go through life. Uh, resenting that bad boss that they had or that bad job that they got fired from unjustly or that bad project. And, and it, in the moment, yeah, that sucks. But I I think, you know, if I'm going to get kind of woo -woo here for a moment, like it sucks in the moment, but when you look back on it retrospectively, rather than having resentment over that failure or that bad boss, like look at it and go, what can I gain from that experience? Uh, you can gain, you know, I don't want to be that kind of boss again, or I don't want to, I don't want to have that kind of boss again. And, or maybe I need to design differently, you know? So I, I think embracing failure, even though it's not fun in the moment, embracing failure in the long run can really help you, um, uh, just overall improve, who you are and what you do uh, in whatever context, learning or just life in general. There are so many authoring tools. Which one is best? And, uh, you know, it's there are so many authoring tools and there's so many different purposes. Um, and I'm sure you can make lots of recommendations. So, I mean, feel free. Yeah. Um, you know, are there best tools out there? I mean, there's tools that I prefer. There's tools I might recommend. So, you know, and I, I, I say this because I'm a true user. Like I love Camtasia for my video editing because it's it's easy and it's what I love doing. But if somebody likes Final Cut Pro because it has more features or whatever, great, use Final Cut Pro. For e-learning, I prefer Storyline, but there's a lot of cool things Captivate can do. And so for me, you know, so many people want to figure out, so many people want to know, should I be using Rise for e-learning or should I do Storyline or should I do Captivate or should whatever the case might be. And so for me, it's about doing what's fit for function for what you're trying to accomplish. Accomplish. And so, you know, if you need to create an e-learning in a week, which is a very aggressive timeline, maybe it doesn't make sense to build something in Storyline. Maybe it makes sense to build something in Rise, right? Or if you need to produce a really professional-looking video in two days and you're limited with your video skills, maybe you use Camtasia instead of trying to use Adobe Premiere Pro because the learning curve is different. So it's doing what's fit for function for your desired outcome and where you're at in that moment uh, and then go from there. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, you know, look, I'm, I'm super biased here and I would say oh, always use TechSmith tools, but I'm, I'm pragmatic in the sense that you're right. Like there is a tool for the job and use the right tool when it it's called for. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I do think, uh, I mean, just from an industry perspective, I think we like our tools a lot. Yeah. We like to like, we want things to be fancier than they are. Um, I, I will say to, to Parisa's uh, question that I really love PowerPoint. I'm yes. not ashamed to say it. Uh, and, but it's about how you use PowerPoint. It's not that it's power. PowerPoint is so powerful. So many things, but of course you can make crappy stuff with it. Of course you can make terrible yeah. stuff with it, but if you're smart about it, you can make some really cool stuff that isn't just a presentation either. 
Yeah. So I, I, let me say about that. So I, I wrote a blog post a few years ago about different ways you can use PowerPoint for graphic design. And somebody sent me this really nasty Graham email about how I was encouraging people to create bad graphics by using PowerPoint because PowerPoint's not a graphic design tool. And there's this great quote, I think David Anderson from Articulate said it, or maybe he quoted somebody else. I don't know. But he said, you know, blaming PowerPoint for bad graphic design is like blaming Microsoft Word for bad instructional design. It's not the tool you use, it's how you use it. And so, mm-hmm. and I'll quote um, Johnny I from Apple, or, or maybe it wasn't Johnny I, maybe it's where I heard it from, but they, there's a saying like the best camera is the one you have on you. And so if you mm-hmm. have your iPhone camera, great. If all you know how to use is PowerPoint, great. You don't need to use Adobe Illustrator if, if you're really comfortable in PowerPoint. And so it's it's whatever you're comfortable with and whatever is the, makes the most sense for the job you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. And I, I, and I would just, uh, piggyback on that and say that, like, I think it's then it's about knowing what to, as much of what to put in as as much of what to leave out. And the problem is too many people want everything, right? We we pile it on, like, let's do everything in there. And that just makes for crappy PowerPoint at that point. Yep. Totally agreed. Yvonne Lee asks, is there a framework or such on how to go about creating an ROI calculator, what metrics are important oh to capture? Gosh. I mean, that feels like a really deep, heavy question. I don't know that we, I couldn't answer that question, but maybe Tim, do you, any ideas or thoughts or, or where to point her to maybe? I mean, uh, here's what I'll say. I, in a previous job, uh, we had created a, a, a dashboard, a metrics dax, dashboard to track the performance of our learners in this call center environment. But the problem was, is that dashboard and the metrics we tracked and how we tracked them and compared it to the learning was so specific to that specific set of metrics and situation and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, maybe you can do that. I don't know, but I I think it's going to be contextual to you, your organization, your learners, what you're measuring, what learning content you're creating and how you're measuring it. So it's, it's kind of the same. I I, I give a similar response when people ask, and this has nothing to do with the question, but it'll make my point when people say, well, is there a calculator that can calculate how long it'll take me to build an hour of learning content? And you can go Google that. And there's all sorts of articles about how long it takes to build an hour of e-learning content. And I think most of it is, is, is BS, if I'm being honest, because there's so many variables that go into how long it takes to develop an hour of e-learning content that nothing is going to be accurate. So, uh, yeah, that's a technical question. I, I, I would, I would refer you to Google. (laughs) (laughs) Which which is a valid answer. I think, um, like there's, and that's, I would say to anyone that's watching that is new, if you want to learn instructional design, start with Google, ask the questions, uh, and, and be critical, right? Don't just take it at like, Oh yes, this is all good stuff. Um, may also recommend that you go follow people like Tim on LinkedIn or, or on, uh, on Twitter, because there are so many good people in our industry who are, are just willing to share. It's so impressive. It's really impressive. I've learned a lot from many, many of the people that I follow because mm-hmm. I think we're a very giving industry. We like, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. So, uh, another question for you. We got lots of good questions today. Um, good. Jen, uh, Whiting asks, what does the future of e-learning look like? What technologies, tools, approaches, et cetera, on the horizon? I, I don't know if you consider yourself a futurist or if you look at the future, or if you're kind of set and doing your work, hmm. are, are, have you seen anything that you think that's coming up that you're like, I'm going to watch that. Anything? Yeah. I, I'm, I, I, 
Do I consider myself a futurist? Uh, no, because I find myself really skeptical about whatever is the current buzz word, buzz <laughs> technique in our industry. One of the things I've seen is each year, every time I go to a conference, it's going to be, there's going to be a highlight on one thing. So like, I'll give you my, a great example. I remember when Apple watches came out, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not joking. I went to a conference session where they were promoting how all e-learning courses will eventually be delivered on your wrist in a little micro e-learning course. And at the time, that seemed cool, but now looking on it, like, how ridiculous does that sound? You know what I mean? Nobody wants to take an e-learning course on their watch and hit the little next button, you know, to continue. Nobody wants to do that. And so I I, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I don't I'm, – I'm a skeptical futurist, I guess, because, you know, these, these buzz things, buzzwords come and go. So what do I think the future of e-learning is? Um, I don't know what future technologies there will be. But I will say, I think, um, and I think we're already seeing this, not only in Camtasia's products and Storyline's products and, or Articulate's products and, uh, and any number of tools, but we are moving in a world where you, you can do just about anything you want to do without having to write code. Uh, whether that's create a virtual reality simulation or augmented reality or an e-learning course or build a website or create a bot or build an app. Like there's just this huge shift of, of, of giving access to people to do things that they couldn't do before. Um, and it's this double-edged, double-edged sword, double-edged double sword. Yeah. Double-edged sword with that, because while that's great for people like me, I have no interest in learning code, but I would love to learn how to build an app. Yeah. The problem is, is as it becomes more available, then you start having stakeholders and subject matter experts designing e-learning courses because, you know, if it's as easy as PowerPoint, why don't they do it? Well, no, because they're not going to develop anything good. So um, <laughs> th- that's kind of the, the, the double-edged sword of that. If anyone can build a website, well, we're going to have a lot of really bad-looking websites out there if it doesn't require a designer. <laughs> we, we saw that with GeoCities, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple more questions, but one that I'm thinking about based on this, like what you said with the Apple watch, right? So I, I don't know if you watched Apple's announcements this week, right? And they just they released, did. of course, right? Like they released the whole fitness plus thing, which I think is really interesting yeah. because they just released or mm-hmm. are releasing, cause it's not quite ready yet. The fitness plus a bunch of instruction. They've just yep. entered kind of the e-learning market for exercise. And to me, that's really fascinating. And it's not that the watch is where you're going to learn, but it's going to provide all this other data to interact. And to me, that's going to augment your learning. Yeah. Yeah. That's super Absolutely. interesting. I was really impressed a few years ago and Apple hasn't had a, a, a there wasn't a lot of attention on this, um, but uh, Apple released a whole curriculum on their iPad teaching kids how to code and they have apps and they're essentially e-learning, like highly interactive e-learning courses for learning how to code. And so I think that's the other thing we're going to see is. Um, and we are seeing it, not that we're going to see, but customer education is slowly starting to not butt heads, but like we're starting to intersect one another. And you're seeing uh, this intersection between uh, marketing, which tends to use the customer, edu- tends to lead the customer education function, but also like that combined with the power of what real IT people can do is creating these really 
uh, amazing experiences. And I think the pressure will be on us traditional L&D people to compete with that because some VP at a company is going to see, well, look what the customer education team is doing. Why aren't we doing that for our employees? You know, let's make it just as good and just as uh, give it give it just as much hype. Yeah, no, I, I, I can totally see that. And as someone who lives in that customer education world, the, mm-hmm. you know, the overlap because customer and really uh, uh, customer education has been shunted around in or, a lot of organizations. Are they marketing? Are they, you know, yeah. do they fit in IT? Where do they, where, are these part of sales? And so no one really kind of, they're still starting to land. Uh, so yeah, I mm-hmm. think you're right though, because, uh, and I think it was Kathy Sierra who was, a she was a writer for O'Reilly back in the the mid two thousands. Great. Had this great blog. She talked about instruction things like that. She actually would talk about like, you know, what if our training looked like a marketing manual versus the, the, the black and white handbook that they would give you, you know, uh, that right. just always resonated with me that it was something that's super, super valuable that like, you know. At the end of the day, the function of marketing is to influence a potential customer's behavior. It's really about behavior change. The thing that marketing has done really good is they do it based on data and evidence. They go into it data first, evidence based first, and uh, and design first, and it and it works. Marketing, you know, they know what works and they know exactly what levers to pull, and uh, and so really. Marketing is just a function of it's just a it's just a, a a form of education. The end goal might be different, but but they're really doing the same thing that we're trying to do. Where is the best place to learn how to set up an e-learning website for your courses? I know you've done some online course development, like so. What do you recommend? Like a portfolio. Yeah, well, a portfolio. You maybe you portfolio? want to start like you want to do your own courses. Maybe you want to teach people how oh, to oh okay uh, groom yeah. horses. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, so if you're looking to create your own like online courses, maybe sell courses on what you're good at. I mean, that's an exploding market within itself. So I personally, I use thinkific.com as an online course platform. I know a lot of people use it and love it. Other people use teachable, Kajabi. Uh, there's a lot of platforms out there, uh, for people who want to, profit off of selling their knowledge. That's, that's a huge floating thing um, uh, that's happening right now. So if that's what you're asking, Teachable, Thinkific, Kajabi, those are great platforms. If you're looking to build a portfolio, you know, that's a whole other thing. I mean, you can Google websites you can do for free and that's really easy or WordPress or, um, you know, any of those, Squarespace, those all work as well. But if you're looking to sell courses or build courses, uh, you know, I use Thinkific, I love that. And any of those are good. Lisa Serino asks, what are your thoughts on virtual instructor led versus e-learning? So, I mean, I, the biggest difference I'm assuming if we can define those is instructional virtual led would be maybe like zoom live e-learning would be on demand. It wouldn't be, you know, be pre-programmed. Yeah. Any, any thoughts on which Yeah. E- either or? So a lot of organizations, you know, primarily because of COVID pandemic, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of organizations have been forced into virtual training of some sort. And so what I've seen a lot of with a lot of clients is they go through this process of taking what they were doing in person and then converting it one for one into a VILT, a virtual instructor-led training. And then they realize, oh yeah, nobody wants to sit on Zoom for eight hours in a day. So then they're going, well, what do we do with it? So then they start exploring e-learning and or breaking it up. And so I think, um, the, the, here's my general thought is 
I don't think organizations should be trying to replicate the in-person experience one for one virtually. It's just not going to work because people get Zoom fatigue and they become Zoombies and that's just the <laughs> fun. And so, uh, you know, it, 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 I, I think here's what I'll recommend. If you're looking to convert something that was done in person into some virtual format, whether it's e-learning or VLT or job aid or videos, really strip it down and reimagine it and figure out what is it we want to accomplish and how does that translate into the virtual world? Cause you're not creating a one for one experience. It's just not going to be effective. Yeah, for sure. I know, um, we had, and this is a slightly different Jay bear. He's a big in the marketing world, does lots of, uh, helping people promote, does a lot. Of, he does a lot of emceeing of big events and stuff like that as well. And he talked about the best virtual events that he's been part of since everything's happened with COVID is that he, and he strongly recommends you pre-record your presenters and then have your presenters yes. interact. So yes, it's still zoom and it's still, you know, they're still getting a, a presentation, but then the, like, it would be like us being much better at being able to chat during this, like with everybody that has these great comments and how cool would that be? And so, yeah, I, I think I love that. Don't just recur, don't try to recreate what worked face to face, you know, change it for the right, mm -hmm. for the medium, appreciate the, the circumstances, the differences and the opportunities. So this is awesome. Tons of. ATD and uh, several other events, they're doing that exact same thing. They're recording their speakers ahead of time. The speaker's still attending, uh, but they're participating in chat while they're recording plays. And, and the, the attendees don't know the difference. Yeah, for sure. As we as we wrap up uh, talking with you, Tim, is any, any last parting pieces of wisdom or, you, you know, feel free to any place people should be looking to find more of your stuff. I'm, I'm guessing timslade.com is, is the location to go to find yep. you. You can find me at timslade.com. I don't know, parting words of wisdom. I don't know. Like, I, I, I spent nine months writing a book on e-learning. I don't have anything more to say about e-learning right now. So I'm just going to say, like, everyone take care of yourself because 2020 has sucked and it's going to still suck for a few more, for a while here. So, like, you know, uh, so many people have been thrown into positions and situations that, that we're just not accustomed to. So find a moment to, like, do some self-care. That's what I'll say. <laughs> no. Well, thank you. And I, and I, I, I get it. You, you've said everything you can say, read the book. That's what Tim has yeah. to say about e-learning. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that for sure. Yeah. No worries. Well, thanks again, Tim, for joining me. It's always a pleasure to have you on as a guest and to be able to just to chat with you. 